Ready to go. Just start with an om, just to kind of uh, center ourselves a bit, and then we'll begin. here, I think I told you that there were three groups of literature that people have to study if they really want to know Vedanta, and that's the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, and the Brahma Sutras. This is called the Prasthanatraya, or the Three Approaches to Vedanta. And this book is the greatest of the three for sadhakas, because this is called Sadhana Prasthana the approach of practice. What is the practical Vedanta? Now I'm taking the 13th chapter, which is, has, is talking about the highest discrimination between the Kshetra and the Kshetragnya. This is already after a tremendous amount of material has been covered. I'm just, we're just starting because... Um, I wanted to share with you what the philosophy, the, the Siddhanta, the highest teaching of the Gita is, that the Shetragnya in you is Paramatma. Shetragnya Chapi Mahavidi. You must remember that. The clear teaching of the Gita is that the witness in you is Paramatma. You are God. You're not separate from Him. But as long as you take yourself to be the Shetra, then he's Ishvara. So not much on sadhana, except for that 13, 7 through 11. If you ever really want to know what are the qualities that I'm going to have to eventually get somehow to make this knowledge, not just book knowledge, but something that actually sinks deep into my own experience. In order for that to happen, the qualities of humility, lack of hypocrisy, control of the senses, dispassion towards the objects of the senses, sitting close to a teacher, Acharyupasanam, Saucham, cleanliness inside and outside. All of those are part of the sadhana. That's the preliminary. And with those qualities, you can begin karma yoga. The very beginning of karma yoga, which starts in the third chapter, begins in the third chapter. After Krishna tells Arjuna in the second chapter the highest teaching, there never time, was a time when I was not, nor you, nor these warriors, nor will there be a time when we will cease to be unchanging, eternal, immortal, 
He taught him the highest teaching right from the get-go. But Arjuna was not an adhikari for that jnana. He had to be taught, Utishta, get up, you just fought, enter into the battle. The Gita is not teaching renunciation from the, from the world. It teaches us how to be in the world and unaffected by it. Asakir, unattached. Karmani abhipravrito api, even while doing the actions, nakimchit karomi, I do nothing. This state, not stopping actions. If you stop actions, Krishna says, he who sees action in no action, that's an action. But he who sees inaction, no action, karmaniya karmaya pashet, sa buddhiman, he's the buddhiman, buddhiman, the one who has buddhi, the discriminative wisdom that the witness never does anything, even while the gunas are moving, even while this body is acting. Guna guneshu, the gunas are moving against the gunas. But I, the witnessing consciousness that lights up everything, that jyoti, that light of all lights, acharam, unchanging, never acting, because it's not in time, it's not in space, it can't modify itself, it never acts. Akarma, he who sees no action in the action, Sabudiman, he's discriminated, he's the Paramahamsa, the one who separated the milk from the water, the self from the not-self. All of the sadhana, is only to purify our minds enough, to make our minds introvert enough, to make our minds subtle enough, to make our minds pure enough, because the reality that we have to realize is the most in, the most subtle. Krishna just, just said, sukshmatvat, because it is the most subtle, avigyam, we can't, see it, it's unknown to us. To the ignorant people, durastam, it's so far away. But for those who know the truth, antike, it's the nearest. There's nothing nearer because it's your own self. That sadhana of purifying your mind, of turning inwards, that's the spiritual journey. There's no other journey. It has nothing to do with going to the Himalayas or Rishikesh. It doesn't have to do with sitting in a cave somewhere. The real journey is to leave all of this behind and to seek out your own true self. That means the mind has to introvert. The mind naturally is extrovert because it's filled with desires filled with greed, filled with jealousy. And until we purify the mind, this teaching is like singing to the deaf. Meaningless. For a person who wants to make money, you tell him about the witness. How much money is he going to make with the witness? 
have no interest. Not only doesn't he have any interest, he can't understand it. It makes no sense because he's not going to try to introvert his mind. He can't. The mind is so gross, so thick. We have to purify the mind, thin it out. And that's why we have to begin with karma yoga. You have to act so you don't be tamas. Nirantara karma is the very first step. You do your duty, whatever it is in this world you have to do. You have to get over that tamas. And then to get over the rajas, you have to lose your identification, your desire for the fruit of that action. Whatever you're doing, it's not for the fruit. You do it with an attitude that I'm doing it for that Paramatma, that Ishwara, that Supreme Being. I'm doing it for you, O Lord. I do everything for you. You'll provide the fruit, whatever it is. I'll take it gladly. It'll be your prasada. That Ishwara Prasada Bhuti. Swami Dayananda used to describe this beautifully. How we have to take the things like prasad from him. Unconcerned, whatever it is. Prasad is the type of thing when you get it, you don't say, eh, you got anything else? No. It's prasad, boom, in. That's it. Whatever you decide, Lord, you're the one who knows best. Whatever comes, I'll take it that you know my benefit. Even the bad things, there must be something or else you would not have let it happen. Something to be learned about it. Something to be understood about it. It's your prasad. Then the next stage is of karma yoga. Not only not being attached to the fruit of your action, but not being attached to the very action itself. The sankalpa, to do the action, I'm not attached. When that thought comes up, I'm going to go to India. Then the action, I go to India. Then the fruit, I'm in India. The sankalpa, the karma and the pala, I have no attachment to any of it. Now you're freed from the bondage of karma. That's the freedom from the bondage of karma. When you're totally freed from all karma, then the mind can rest totally on God, even while all the actions are going on. Now you're free. That's called Naish Karmiya. In the third chapter, Krishna says to Arjuna, man does not attain actionlessness merely by renouncing action. He teaches Arjuna how to do action so it won't be a bondage. By not, once the mind has become sattvic by not being attached, now you can really do this discrimination. What is the Kshetra? Who is the Kshetranya? At that stage, you can now see I do nothing, even while all these things apparently are going on. That's how you get freed from the bondage of karma. That's called nice karmia. And then there's a perfection of that. It's called nice karma siddhi. That person is the jnana That's the one who's established in knowledge. That's the bhakta, the real bhakta. That's the meaning of bhakti. His mind is totally absorbed in that. 
even while all the activities are going on. While walking, talking, sitting, moving, he feels I do nothing. At that stage, in 1850, Krishna says, Siddhi prapta yata brahma having attained this nice karma siddhi, being free from all actions, I'm going to tell you how you attain Brahman. Why isn't being free from all actions the final thing? Because even being free from all actions is in ignorance. Brahman is not free from all actions. He doesn't see himself doing nothing while the gunas are moving. He's not a gunatita beyond the gunas. Because in Brahman there are no gunas. He's not actionlessness because there's no time or space. He neither is unchanging or changing. He's neither born nor unborn. But to get that Brahma, you have to become a Jnananishta. That Jnananishta is described in the second chapter, 254 to the end of the chapter. Stitta pregnya kabasha. What is the description? That's the state we have to get through, through karma yoga. When all the desires in his mind have been cast off, when he withdraws all his senses like a tortoise withdraws his limbs. When you can read it. You'll see how far away we are from this. You won't get to that without progressing through these steps. In the seventh chapter, Krishna says, have your mind on me always. If you can't do that, then at least practice having your mind on me always. If you can't do that, then do all of your actions with no attachment to the action as worship to me. And if you can't do that, then at least give up your attachment to the fruits of your action. The very bottom rung of karma yoga. Try it. Good luck. The very bottom rung. How to do it. We want the fruit of our action. So this book is the handbook. It's teaching us the highest truth. If you read Shankara's introduction to the Gita, he says this Gita is Sarva Vedanta Sara Samgraha Bhutam. It is the essence of all of the Upanishads. It teaches the sadhana and the highest truth. But the emphasis is on sadhana. And for a sadhaka, for someone who wants to get onto the spiritual path and practice sadhana, this is the guidebook. This is the Boy Scout handbook for sadhakas. You have to pickle your mind in the Gita. You read it. No, but Krishna says, I am the creator of the Vedanta and I'm the only one who knows the Vedanta. You'll never understand the Gita until you become like Krishna. Don't think, no matter how much you study this book, there's more to learn. It's like an onion, this book. As we do the sadhana, the mind becomes more pure. As our mind becomes more pure, 
the teaching of the Gita, slokas that you've read a hundred times, you read it, and all of a sudden it opens up a new vista. How is it that I, it's so clear? But because my mind was so thick, so rajas, so tamas, I, as the mind gets purer, the Gita reveals it's like an onion. We think we got it, but then one time we peel off a thing and a new thing opens up. We think we got it, and then more and more, as our mind gets more sattvic and more sattvic, the Gita becomes what seems to be a contradictory chaos. Someplace there's yoga, seems to be a little Vedanta, a little Sakya, a little... Is there any teaching here? The whole Gita becomes a cosmos, a coherent teaching that makes perfect sense right from the beginning up to the highest teaching. Tatvamasi, you are that Brahman. It's in here, in the Gita. He tells Arjuna how to become one with me. And the highest sadhana, the very highest sadhana, the culmination of all sadhana is bhakti. There is no higher sadhana than bhakti. You have to fall in love with that reality. It has to be something, a yearning for that, that is to the exclusion of everything else. Bhaktyaiva mamabhijanati. By bhakti alone you will come to know me. Mat bhakta buddhiyogam dadami. I give my devotee that power to discriminate so that he becomes one with me. Only my devotee I give him that capacity. Merely intellectually understanding this thing is nothing. It'll be a bondage to you to understand it intellectually. You'll become proud. Boy, do I know the Gita. It'll do you no good. That discriminative wisdom only comes to bhaktas. Mat bhakta, in the 12th chapter, he says, my bhakta having known this, only the bhakta can come to know this. We have to become bhaktas. What does that mean? Our mind has to become devoted to that. Not devoted to that. That's bhakti. If I love my wife, it's not bhakti. If I love my money, it's not bhakti. Bhakti means love of God. When I turn my mind to that supreme being and want him, wanting to join with him, wanting to be a yogi, yujite, to join with that is called yoga. That's what it means to be a yogi, to join your mind to that, to think about that, to read about that, to meditate on that, to be with people that are also thinking about that. That's the life of a bhakta. That's the qualification. That bhakta gets the grace of paramatma, that anugraha, only the bhakta. It's available to everyone, but if you don't put up the sail, you don't get his grace. The wind is flowing for everyone, but you have to put up the sail to get it. Unless you turn your mind to him, he won't reveal himself to you. 
Only to his bhaktas he reveals his nature. As long as the mind is out, he's hidden. Durastam, he's very far away. But for those who turn their mind inwards, there's nothing so near, nothing so close, nothing so obvious, nothing so evident, because it's the light that lights up everything. And that's the verse I'm going to take right now. Jyotishama pita jyoti tamasa paramuchite gyanam geyam gyanadam yam hridi sarvasya vivishyatam Jyotishama of all the lights Jyotisham, of all the lights, Tajyotihi, that is the light. It's the light that lights up all the lights. Jyotisham, of all the lights, Jyotihi, that is the light that lights up all the lights. Look at it. You are the light of the whole waking state. You are the light of the whole dream state. That's the Jyoti. That witness in you is the eternal light that lights up all phenomena. Not only do you light up the light, you light up the darkness. You're the light that lights up the light and the darkness, and you're beyond light and darkness. That's the supreme light, Param Jyoti, Svayam Jyoti. What lights up that light? Svayam Jyoti, it's self-lit. Self-revealed, self-evident. You don't need anything to light it up because it's in that light that everything appears. Jyoti Sham Tat Jyotihi, that light of all lights. Jyoti Sham Tat Jyotihi, Tamasa Param, beyond darkness. Tamasa Param Uchite, it is said to be beyond darkness. It never goes out. It's the eternal light. When the waking disappears and the dream disappears, it's still shining. It lights up the absence of everything. And when anything appears, it lights up the appearance. It's the eternal light of the self, beyond darkness. And then he sums up, Jnanam Gayam Jnanagamyam. Knowledge, gayam. Knowledge was, do you remember that list of amanitvam, adamvitvam, ahimsa, uh, humility, lack of boastfulness, straightforwardness, all of that Krishna called jnana. Why did he call that jnana? Does anybody remember? Leads to jnana. Because it leads, it leads to jnana. Because it leads to jnana. But that last one in the list is the jnana. Tattva jnana arta darshanam. The last in the list, it says adhyatma jnana nityatvam. Always involved in the knowledge of the inner self. That's the jnana nishta. And the final stage is that darshanam. Tattva jnana, the knowledge of that tattva, that truth. Tattva jnana arta 
that object that is revealed by that knowledge, darshanam. Darshana here doesn't mean seeing it as an object, but directly intuiting it as your own self. That's darshana. Seeing the self which is unseeable. Knowing the self which is unknowable as an object. The knower of knowing can't be known. The seer of seeing can't be seen. That which can't be known by the mind, but that by which the mind itself is said to be known. Know that to be Atman, and not what they meditate on as this. That Jyoti. Jnanam. Tattva jnana artha darshanam, geyam, the thing to be known. He said to Arjuna, Tat geyam aham pravakshami yatyatvam rittamashnita. I'm now going to tell you the geyam, the thing that you have to know. And what did he tell him? What is the thing? How did he describe that thing that has to be known? Somebody? If you know it, there's nothing. No. No. Somebody? This was the Nasat Nasat Uchite. Hmm. Anybody? Existent and not existent. It's neither existent nor nor. Nasat. It's not existent. Oh, it's non existent? Naasat. That negation. That's the gayam. That's here. Gyanam gayam. That thing that has to be known, anadimat param brahma, the beginningless supreme Brahman. What is that? It is said to be neither existence or non-existence. There is no other way to describe it. That from which words return having failed to reach along with the mind. There is no other way. The highest teaching in Vedanta is not this, not this. Nasat Nasat, the same as the Upanishads. That geyam, the thing that has to be known. In the end, the teacher has to negate everything, including this ego that wants to know the truth. That guy that wants to know, neti, neti, he goes with that. That's called mukti when finally the one who wanted to know the truth is gone. As long as he's there, there's no neti neti. He's part of existence. Nasat. Oh, non-existent? That's within the empirical realm. Things exist, things don't exist. He's not asat. He's not in time. He's not in space. He has none of the empirical characteristics of existence and non-existence. You remove all of that, there's one thing that remains that can't be negated. It's the very witness of the negation itself. It's there during the negation. People think only after you negate everything, then the self manifests. The self is always manifest. But because we're identified with the not-self, it seems as though it's not shining. So when you negate everything, that thing that remains, that can't be thought away, 
when you take away the waking and you take away the dream, that's the game. You intuit this truth. You can't objectify it. You have to intuit it from the inside because you can't see it with your eyes, you can't hear it with your ears, you can't smell it with your nose, you can't taste it with your tongue, you can't feel it. We have no way of knowing it. There's no sense organ that can perceive it. There's no word that can describe it. There's no concept that conceive of it. But by negating everything, that reality shines forth in its true nature. That's called Gyeyam. Knowing that, Amrita Mashnute, you will attain immortality. Krishna promises us, the moment you know that, you'll be immortal. Jnanam Gyeyam, Jnana Gamyam, and that which is grasped by knowledge. Jnana Gamyam. Hridi Sarvasya, that reality, Hridi, the word Hridi literally means heart. But in Vedanta, the word heart means mind. Hridi, it's in the mind of everyone. Do you know that morning remembrance prayer? You guys recite it? Pratasmarami Hridi Samsparat, that effulgence in the heart. It means the effulgence in the mind. That light that's lighting up every thought, that's there with every emotion, with every perception, with every memory, any mental phenomena, it has to be there as the witness. That's called hridi. The heart is the mind of everyone. It's in the minds of everyone. That witness that's lighting up your thoughts and your mental phenomena is the same witness that's lighting up mine. Ekatma Sarva Bhuteshu. There's only one witness, one self in all beings. It's the same self. It can't be denied, but divided. Avibhaktam Vibhakteshu. Even though it's undivided, it seems to be divided because of the different minds. Even though space is undivided, it seems divided because of the different cups. But there's just one space in all of the hridis. Sarvasya hridi. This jnanam is in you. This gyayam is in you. And the only way that you can see it is by introverting the mind. That's what a pure mind means. When the mind is on the world, that's called an impure mind because the world is always changing. And so the mind is like the monkey mind, running after this, trying to avoid that ragadvesha, likes and dislikes. This is how we go about our business. But you can never realize that jyoti as long as the mind is like that. You have to spiritualize your mind, which means it has to turn inwards. Spiritual life is not getting a new name from a guru. It has nothing to do with putting on a different set of clothes. It doesn't mean spiritual because you went to Rishikesh. The spiritual journey is only this. There's no other journey to make. But it's a difficult journey. 
Because you have to lose interest in everything else or the mind will be pulled out. You have to be convinced there's not a drop of happiness out there. What people call happiness is really dukkha yoni. It's the source of suffering. You have to see the truth that it will come to an end. It will never bring you what you're looking for, which is unending happiness. If you want that, then you have to look somewhere else. Jnanam gyanam jnana basam hridi sarvasya in the hearts of every being. It's not far away from you. It's right there in your own mind. But the mind can't objectify it. That's the problem. Vishtitam. It pervades the whole thing. It's entered into the mind itself. It lights up the mind. It's kind of like uh, a mirror. And the self is like the sun. And that reflection, it looks like this, the sun is in the mirror. The mind and the sun have become one. And it seems like the sun is, the mind is conscious. The mind is an object. It has no consciousness at all. The thoughts appear in consciousness. They're not conscious. But we think that the mind and the mental phenomena are all conscious. They become mixed. Mind is Shetra. The witness is Shetranya. But everyone in our ignorance have mixed these two up and we think the mind is conscious. That, that Shetranya is in the Shetra as though it appears as though that it's residing in our own minds. That's where we have to find it. Not in the Himalayas, but in our own mind. That's where the truth resides. Truth is everywhere. But if you look outside, you'll never see it. You have to find it in your own self. Then you'll see that that self pervades everything. It's everywhere. But you have to find it in your own heart, in your own mind. That's the place to look for it. Hridi sarvasya. In the hearts of every being, it's staying there. Tishtati, it remains there. So that's where we have to seek it out. And he sums up this portion like this. Iti kshetram tatagyanam geyam chehuktam samasataha matpakta yatvigyaya matpavaya upapadyate Let me explain this verse and then we'll stop with the Gita. Iti, indeed, kshetram, what is the field? Tadagyanam, what is knowledge? Knowing that the object of the knowledge of the truth, tatvijnana artha, darshanam, that's jnanam, gyayam, that thing that has to be known, which is not this, not this, nasat, nasat, there's no other way to describe it. There's an Upanishadic verse that says, sa neti neti atma, Na param anushasanam. This is the self which is not this, not this. There is no higher teaching than not this, not this. That's the highest teaching of Vedanta. There's no other way to teach it. 
No word can describe it. Only the negation of what it's not. You don't need anything to reveal it because it's Svayam Jyoti. It's self-lit. It's self-revealed. It's self-evident. It's self-manifest. Nothing need to be done to reveal it. You just have to remove everything that you've mixed it up with. That's the neti neti. So he says, Shetram jnanam geyam chichar uktam samasataha. I've told you briefly, Arjuna, what is the geyam? Not this, not this. What is knowledge? Tatvagyana arthadarshanam. The direct seeing of that thing which is not this, not this. And I've told you what is the Shetra. Shetra is the Mahabhutani, the whole universe made up of elements. The Ahamkara is also Shetra. We think the ego is the subject, but the Gita tells us a secret. Uh-uh, it's also Shetra. What about the intellect? Isn't that filled with consciousness? Uh-uh. Shetra. I have told you this samasataha very briefly and now the next line says this. Mat bhakta my devotee only his devotee gets to know this. Mat bhakta etat vigyaya Having known this, having known this, my bhakta, having known this, mat bhavaya upapadyate, he becomes fit to become me. My bhakta becomes fit when he knows this. This is the Gita. Look at the beauty. When Krishna says, Jnani tu atmaeva mematam, I consider the Jnani my very self. Mat bhakta, when he knows this, he'll be fit to, to be my being, mat bhavaya, to be my being, to become one with me. Only the bhakta can know this. People like me can know this by memory. But the bhakta knows this that makes him fit to be that. The whole purpose of the Gita is that. Who is Shetra? What is the Shetragnya? That Shetragnya is Paramatma. Shetragnya Chapi. And only my bhakta is fit for knowing this. No one else. You want to know this? You become my devotee. All right. Take a break from the Gita. And let's see, at this point, are there any questions? Everybody understands it perfectly clear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I made it so clear for everybody. Regarding the Gita or general 
Yeah, any question. I would like to be challenged on some of this business. Okay. Um, yeah. Two questions. One is um, regarding the morning prayer we were chanting. And um, Satchit Sukam, why is he using Sukam, not Satchit Ananda? Is he just. Only for meter. Satchit Sukam is Satchit Ananda. Sat he is existence, consciousness, sukham here means ananda. It's just enough. Because happiness in the true sense, that sukha that is not caused by anything, because it's your very nature, is sukha. What in the world we call sukha is nothing but dukkha. The real sukha is your own nature. Anything that you get will come to an end. It's not sukha really. It's just the womb of suffering. The real sukha is ananda. So, satchit sukham paramahamsa gatim. That satchit sukham is the goal of the paramahamsas. Who's the paramahamsa? The one who knows what is shetra and who's the shetranya. They've been mixed up and they become like milk and water. They're like one. You have to make the mind so subtle and so pure that you can discriminate like that Paramahamsa who takes out the water and leaves the milk. The mind has to become such that that Shetra and Shetragnya, which is so one now, I'm so identified with this Shetra. The identification is so thick I can read this Gita till I'm blue in the face and this identification stays. Why is it that it's, it, it's so... I feel that I am this. When somebody touches this, they touch me. How do I get rid of that identification? Only a Paramahamsa. Mat Bhakta. He can do it. He knows this. Satchit Sukham Paramahamsa Gatim. That's the goal of all the Paramahamsas. What? That effulgence in the mind of everyone. That's what those Paramahamsas are looking for. They're wandering around India looking for this thing. They don't realize it's sitting in their own mind. If they're real Paramahamsas, they don't have to go anywhere. They just have to discriminate the subject from the object. Darshan of Riti, Adarshan of Riti, yes? Yes. Uh, yeah, I've got a simple question, maybe. Uh, you were speaking about the order that one should read the chapters of the Gita in, and also that one should read the Upanishads in. Can you list them so one can write it down? Well, I'll just say that if you want to study the Gita, I would say the 16th chapter is the first chapter to begin with. All of those qualities that are listed in the 16th chapter is the very beginning of the sadhana. Before you can even do karma yoga, you have to get rid of, in the 16th chapter, they talk about two types of heritage. One is called asuri vritti, demonic, and the other is called daivi vritti the divine qualities. And Krishna lists what are those divine qualities. 
And what are the Asuri qualities? And we have to try to get rid of those Asuri qualities and cultivate the right qualities. So there in the 16th chapter we can begin so that we can see that list and then introspect and, and check our own self honestly and ruthlessly and truthfully and see how far, what do I have to do to get those daivi vritti and get rid of that asuri vritti of hatred and jealousy and greed and violence. All of those demonic qualities that keep me away from Paramatma. And what are the divine qualities? We should study those so that we can examine our own self and see, are we measuring up to that? What can I do to become more like that? That's the beginning because you'll never be able to even begin karma yoga as long as the asuri vritti is predominant. So I would say the 16th chapter is the beginning of the sadhana. You start there. The Gita should not be written, read like it's some type of novel or a book or a story. It's a manual and we, it doesn't follow a particular order. The highest teaching is in the very beginning. It should have been at the end. He starts off with Samkhya Yoga. The highest teaching about the self, he tells Arjuna, You grieve where you should grieve not, even though you seem to be speaking words of wisdom, Arjuna. Gatasuna Panditaha. The people who know the self, they neither grieve for the living or the dead. Why is that? Why doesn't the wise people grieve for the living or the dead? Yes. It's not because they're indifferent, that they don't care. There's nothing living or dead. They only see the self. All the moha, the delusion is gone. Once the delusion is gone, all grief is gone. Grief comes from delusion. Arjuna is deluded. He has moha. He thinks I'm a warrior. I have to kill those people or they're going to kill me. I don't want to kill them. They're my relatives. They're my teachers. Why would I want to kill them? He's deluded and he's grieving. That same delusion and grieving is what we all have. We all have the same moha and joka. We're all in delusion and because of that we're grieving. But when the moha is gone, when the delusion is gone, the word moha comes from the Sanskrit root muj. Muj means to mix up. The really meaning of the word moha is that I've mixed up myself with the not-self. That's the only delusion in Vedanta. There's no other delusion than this. That's the moha. And because of that, shoka. Moha and shoka. The whole purpose of the Gita is to remove the moha so we have no shoka. He's talking over the shoulder of Arjuna to us. We all have the same moha and we're all grieving. And he's going to tell us how to put an end to that delusion. 
so that we will grieve no more. Masuchaha. And for 18 chapters, he goes through this whole business. And then in 1866, he finally sums up what you chant every night at the Arti. Sarva Dharma Parityaja. Mamikam Sharanam Vraja. Sarva Papebhyaham Moksha Yishami. Masuchaha. It ends with Masuchaha. Don't grieve. If you Mam Ekam Sharanam, you take refuge in Mam Ekam, oneness with me, I will free you from all sin. As long as you're apart from me, I can't do it, Arjuna. But if you give up all dharmas, serve a dharma. Here, dharma we should take as anatma, all not-self. You give up all not-self, even the one who wants to give up, that ego. When we go in front of the altar and we say, I surrender, that same ego that went down that same ego comes up again. <laughs> he doesn't go anywhere. I surrender. And then he gets up. That guy who wants to surrender, somehow you take him out of the picture. You take refuge in me alone, in oneness with me. That's the culmination of the teaching of Krishna. Give up all other dharmas. Serva dharma paritiyaga. Tiyaga means abandon. Pari means completely, not partially, not on Mondays when we, not from 9 to 10 when I meditate. Completely, everything. Then you can take refuge in me alone. If you do that, I will release you. I will free you from all papa. Masucha, the end of grief. Once you take refuge in me. If you take refuge in this, you will suffer, you will get old, you will get sick, and you will die. If you take refuge in me, you will attain immortality. The end of the Gita teaching. The whole Gita is to tell us how to do that. How to get the mind fit enough to take refuge in oneness with Him. They usually translate that verse as Ma Mekam Sharanam. Take refuge in me alone. But the word is not ma-meva. It's ma-mekam. Sharanam. Oneness with me. That's what you take refuge in. Not in me alone. Then he's something other than you. You take refuge in oneness with me. Then you'll be free from all papa. There's no other way. And the only way to become one with Him is to know that you are Him. You should know that that witness in you is Me. That's the jnana. That's the wisdom that's taught. And all of the sadhana is just to prepare us so that we can understand this truth in our own experience. Not with our intellect with our direct experience, not as a concept, but as a fact, like the berry on the fruit of your hand. You have to see this truth. And when you know this truth, 
you'll be that. And when you're that, you won't even know that you're that. When the ignorance is gone, you won't know that it's gone. That's moksha. Not knowing anything. In Vedanta, to know doesn't mean to know. It means to be. If you pick up one thing from this whole series of lectures here, just remember this. Knowledge doesn't mean knowing anything. It means being. That's the only moksha. When you're that, you won't know that you're that. The self doesn't know itself. The self doesn't have to know itself. The self can't know itself. There's nothing other than the self that ever knew the self. If there was, duality would be true. When there's no more knower, nothing known, and no knowledge, that's called Atmagyana. That's Atmagyana. When the Pramatru, Pramana, Pramaya, Vyavahara is gone. It's not a question of knowing anything. Brahmavid, Brahmabhavati. But when to him all has become the self alone, what will he see and with what? What will he hear and with what? What will he know and with what? He won't know anything and there's no means of knowledge. This wisdom destroys all duality in a moment. It just burns up all karmas. Krishna tells, the second you know this, all karmas are burnt like ashes. Serva karma, all karmas. People think after jnana, you still have to go through your prabdha karma. That means the karma that brought you into this world, even the jnani will have to go through his prabdha karma. What do you think? I like it. He burns up all karma. I have no pravda, I have no agama, and I have no, what's the third one? Sanchita karma. All karmas are burnt up. He doesn't make an exception. Read the Gita. He says he burns up all karmas. There's no pravda for him. But what about that guy that's sitting in front of me teaching, the guru? Isn't he have his prabdha? You superimpose on the jnani that he has a body, mind and senses and that he's teaching you Vedanta. But from his point of view, he never said a word. He never taught anybody anything. There's no Vedanta. There's no students. There's no gurus. There's no ignorant people and there's no wise man. There's only the self. That's Advaita. That's moksha. Not knowing anything. The one who feels he knows this is all maya is an ignorant man. It won't help you. As long as there's a knower, you're finished. You are that. That is not a knower that never knew anything. The seventh mantra of the Mandukya, na anta pragna na bahish pragna, na ubayata pragna. 
He's not aware of the dream. He's not aware of the bahish, the waking. He's not aware of deep sleep. The self never knew anything. The witness never witnessed anything. He's only called a witness because you think there's something witnessed. When you realize the witnessed is just maya, it's just an appearance that never was, isn't when it's appearing, and never will be, then he's not a witness. That was just a deliberate adhiropa for the purpose of teaching. There's no witness because there's nothing witnessed. The self never saw anything. If he ever saw anything, duality would be true. To remove the idea that I'm the ego, we call him the witness. But when you see that the witness never was, it's just like a dream, swapnavat, the whole second chapter of the Gaudapada Karikas, which has to be studied if you really want to understand how is the waking and dream exactly the same? No difference. Then from that point of view, all duality is like a dream. And a dream is that which appears to be real, but in truth never was. You're the truth of the dream. You're the only reality. That's Advaita. That's the final teaching. Ekam Advitiyam, one without a second. You are that. You've always been that. You don't have to make any effort to become that. You don't have to change anything. You don't have to merge into it. It's your eternal nature. You can't even lose it. Even in our ignorance, we are that. Because I say, I am fat, I am thin, it doesn't change my nature at all. I'm the witness of all of those thoughts, unaffected, unattached. But in our ignorance, we identify with this. I'm going to ask somebody a question here. This is a PhD question in Vedanta. Who gets the liberation? Does the ego get liberated? Or does the self get liberated? Nobody. What are you, a PhD candidate? That's correct. But then why does the scripture talk about I will liberate you from all sin? You have to get mukti. The whole purpose of Vedanta is to attain moksha. You know, in the culture of ancient India, there were four pursuits for a person to have. Dharma, Artha, Kama, and Moksha. And this was considered the Parama Purushartha. The highest goal of human life is Moksha. But who gets the Moksha? Does the ego get it? Why can't the ego get Moksha? It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. So it can't get Moksha. How about the self? Can the self get Moksha? Why not? Nitya Muktaha. It's eternally free. So who gets the moksha? All we can say is that 
Because of ignorance, the self seemed as though bound. And when the ignorance is gone, we can say, the self seems as though now it's free. But the ego never gets moksha. So if anyone says, I'm mukta, I'm liberated, I'm enlightened, I know the truth, that lying person, that phony fraud, you, if he even opens his mouth like that, you should know that he doesn't understand Advaita. Nobody can say he's a jnani. When you're a jnani, you won't even know you're a jnani. Because the knower will be gone. The best you can be is a jnananishta, a brahmanishta. That's the guru. The one who knows the scripture and the one whose mind is established in that. That's not a jnani. You can't go to a jnani because a jnani can't teach you. But a jnananishta can. That's who we have to find. It's the jnananishta who finally gets the jnana. But that body doesn't drop dead when you get the jnana. From your point of view, you're Brahman. You have no students, you do nothing, you teach nothing. Though speaking all day, not a word has been said. Though walking all day, I have not moved an inch. I have no students. In me there's neither memory or forgetfulness. I am Satchitananda Swarupa. That's the jnani. The self never gets liberated. But because of ignorance, it's the self that seems as though it was bound, as if. And because of knowledge, it seems as though the self was freed. But the ego will never be freed. In Upadesha Sahasri, Shankara says, if the ego were to think that it was freed, there would still be no end to its suffering. If I think I am mukta, I'm enlightened, I know the truth, there still be no end to its suffering. That's the profundity of Vedanta. That's the subtlety of it, the beauty of it. The depth of it. What Advaita really means. Not that there are jnanis and ajnanis. Sureshwar says in Naishkarma Siddhi, a beautiful verse, Other than me, there is no one who knows the self. Other than me, there is no one who is ignorant of the self. He who knows this, even unknowingly, that means not as an object, but intuits it as a revealed fact. He who knows this, even unknowingly, it's like the Upanishad that says, to him to whom it's known, he knows it not. And to him who knows it not, he knows it. Unknowingly. He who knows this, even unknowingly, is the best of the knowers of Brahman. There are no jnanis, there are no ajnanis. It was all in ignorance. Other than me, the non-dual self, there's no ajnanis. 
I have nobody to teach and give them jnana. In me, there never was any ignorance. I never needed any knowledge to remove that ignorance. I was never bound. I never had to become free. We should all remember that famous verse by Gaudapada. Naadpatir, there is no creation. Na nirodaha, there is no destruction. Na badaha, there's nobody bound. Na sadhakaha, the whole Gita is sadhana. Na sadhakaha, there is nobody practicing spiritual discipline. Na mamukshu, there is nobody who desires liberation. Shankara said the most important quality is a desire for liberation. Nama mukshahu, muktaha, and there's nobody liberated. Iti esha paramartaha, that is the highest truth. If that's the highest truth, then all of this other business about everything comes from Brahman, everything abides in Brahman, Everything goes back. Na paramartaha. I am bound because of my ignorance. Na paramartaha. I have to practice sadhana and purify my mind and turn in and become a bhakta. Na paramartaha. I have to desire liberation. Nobody has ever desired liberation. And there's nobody who ever got liberated. This is the truth. But in our ignorance, we think there's a creation. And I feel like I'm bound. And I want to do something to get free from it. And I desire my moksha. And I'm sure there must be some type of mukti. But in truth, none of it is real. That's Advaita. That's the real Advaita. Gaudapada is so beautiful, so radical. So extreme to get your mind into Gaudapada, to see how Shankara explains Gaudapada. Those four chapters. It's quite a study, but it's so unique. They call it the Asadharana Dharma. It's the unique teaching of Vedanta. No other teaching. If you were to take a piece of paper and put a line on the top and put a line down the middle and on one side you put every thinker in the history of human thought that thought duality was real in some sense, you can list every religion, every mystic, rational thinking accepts duality. Science accepts duality. Theology, empiricism, mysticism, they're all in duality. Every thinker. And then on this side, all those thinkers who have denied the truth of duality in every sense, there's only one name to list there. It's called Advaita Vedantins. They stand alone. Their teaching is unique. When I, in the beginning, when I was first studying Vedanta, and I heard that this Vedantic teaching is totally unique, I thought, what a trivial statement. 
Every teaching is unique. Judaism is not Christianity. It's unique. Christianity is not science. It's unique. Science is not mysticism. It's un- Every teaching is unique. If it wasn't, it would be the same as some other teaching. But Vedanta is unique in a different sense. In the sense that every other thinker has accepted the truth of duality in some sense. Even the mystics that say, in the one the many exists, out of the one the many has come. That's not Advaita. There's no many. Nothing came. Nobody knew it. There's only one reality. There's only one group of thinkers. And that tradition belongs to the Upanishads. They're the ones who teach Sarvam idam brahmam All this is brahmaneva alone. Ekam advityam It is one and there is no second thing. That is the self. I am Atma Brahma. The self is that non-dual reality. That is the Asadharana Dharma. That's why it's unique. Because it denies the truth of duality in every sense. And no other teaching teaches like that. Okay. So, any further questions? Please. Um, I was just wondering, are you familiar with the Course in Miracles? Yes. So in my opinion, is that everything that I've heard you say is that is like, you know, I was like, okay, it's just different words describing, in my opinion, the mm. exact same thing, mm. and then just mm. using some different methods to get there, but saying clearly in the end, once salvation is reached, there won't even be any salvation, and it uses it says it says all to all duality um, dream. It doesn't you know. It also talks about the dream and the way but it then it calls it all a dream and says one well, once the dreamer wakes up in a in a sense it, it will be gone and then it never was and it never was. So I haven't found anything where it's not the same. Mm. Is anyone else familiar with the Course in Miracles? You know about it. A little bit, something. Which is, of course, great because it means yay. You know. Means yay. <laughs> I'm happy about that. You know, the Course of Miracles, it was th- what this woman channeled this thing uh, down and she got uh, this thing. Uh, I think she read a lot of Vedanta, is what she did. But um, there are plenty of mistakes and contradictions and criticisms of that teaching. If you want, I, I know it. you haven't found it, but I can point them out to you. Mm. It's just like Swami Dayananda. So you have not found mm. it to be the same? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. And the main is, I'm saying that they don't know the method of Vedanta. See, even that I found after listening. Ah. I, I thought that I, it's, just a, it's just a matter of interpretation. Ah. Well, if you'd like to interpret the Course in Miracles just like Advaita Vedanta, yeah. I'm happy for you to do that because then you'll get the so same yeah, thing. The same if thing. there's no, yeah. because if you feel that what they're saying is exactly what I'm yeah. saying, then it's Advaita Vedanta. Yeah. 
It's not cause and miracles. Because the cause of miracles yeah, came much later. Call it yes, know, but, but where is the origin? In other words, this is the ancient teaching of the Upanishads. If some lady channeled this thing and, and taught something that's exactly like the Upanishads and uses the same method as the Upanishads, that whatever it says in the beginning, it negates it in the end, then it's an Upanishad. I was just wondering if you were familiar with it. I am. It's, I don't like it at all. Mm -hmm. I you think there's it. a... And you love it, and I'm happy that you love it. And if you think it's the same that what I've been saying here, mm -hmm. then I'm happy to accept it if that's how you understand it. Yeah. Because what I'm trying to teach here is what's called Shuddha Shankara Vedanta, the pure Vedanta of Shankaracharya. Because there were many Advaitins that taught non-duality. Yeah, that's why when I first came here, I was like, whoa, I think I have to leave, because they're talking about all this duality stuff, and that's not what I believe. No, no, but what I'm... this, I'm like, ah, this I can get with, because this Good. is to me the same. Good, I'm happy. But let me just say that merely because you say the highest truth is Advaita, all of this is like a dream, it doesn't mean that you know Advaita. That, that's not... Advaita. Well, I mean, I'm still here, so of course I don't know it. Oh, no, no, not you. Not you. I mean, some scripture or some. At the time of Shankara, there were nine other schools of Advaita Vedanta. Nine other schools. Shankara criticized them ruthlessly. Mm -hmm. They were all Advaitins. They agreed with Shankara that there's just one reality without a second. All of this never was, is, or will be. They all said that, but they had some funny ideas. How do you realize that? Some said you do it by karma. Shankara criticized that. Some said you can do it by meditation. Shankara criticized that. Some said after you get the knowledge of non-duality, you have to make that knowledge strong. Shankara criticized that. They were all Advaita Vedantins, saying it's all a dream, there's only one reality. But there were so many defects in the teaching. This Course of Miracles is filled with defects. We'd have to sit down and go through it. It's a big text. It's filled with all sorts of stuff that are unacceptable to this tradition. This is called the Sampradaya. A Sampradaya means a parampara, a tradition that has been handed down from teacher to student in a particular way. Shankara Sampradaya is this method of Adhiropa Apavada. There were other Advaitins at the time of Shankara. Some of them said, there's only one reality. But reading the Bhagavad Gita or the Upanishads, you'll never be able to know that reality directly. What do you have to do? If you really want to know and experience non-duality, you should get rid of all of your thoughts. You must attain samadhi. Because it's in the state of samadhi that we actually experience non-duality. So you must get samadhi or else you'll just have paroksha jnana, indirect knowledge. If you want direct knowledge, you have to do chitta vritti nirod, remove all of the mental modifications. 
And in that state, the yogi experiences. And when he comes out of it, he now knows what's the experience of non-duality, not just book knowledge, right? You, but that's not right. I, you agree? I agree. Okay. So you can see that some people can say, I believe in non-duality, mm -hmm. but the means to realize it may not be the same. How do you realize non-duality in the course of miracles? By bringing illusions to the truth. By bringing illusions to the mm -hmm. truth. Because there can only be one thing, truth. Yeah, but in our ignorance, we don't know what the truth is. How do we get rid of that ignorance? How do we come to know the truth? I mean, there's ways, but I, but I can't hold a lecture here now. No, no, just give me a little idea. To forgive everything. Forgive everything. And to forgive it not in the sense of traditional forgiving, I'm better than you, so I'm forgiving you, but you did the thing, but to say, I'm forgiving the world because it, nothing ever happened, nothing's happening now, and nothing ever will happen. And by doing that, the, and then we would have to get into the explanation of how the thing, there's only one, there's only one small difference, but there's one mind which becomes healed, and then there's only that one thing, because you're saying there's only that one thing. Well, and that one thing is having something. Is what? Right? It's, it's having something. It's having some kind of a, it's, like you're saying, it's witnessing something. But it's that superimposition that also is being used in the Course in Miracles, where they, in the beginning, also tell you something that in the end they say, you know what, that never was evil. This is why I'm saying it's like they're using the superimposition, using the same method. Okay. You know, they're, because they're telling you, well, oh yeah, you're here and then this, and then you have to forgive stuff, and then you have to do this and this, and then after you do all that, then there's that one moment where it goes, and then, then and nothing ever was, and nothing is, and ah, nothing ever will ah, be. Ah, and you know that. You come well, to know the, that. I'm just saying, it's the same thing. No, no, somebody same. knows that. The guy, there's a famous guy on YouTube who teaches, what's his name? I don't know. Yeah. Well, there's a lot it's of YouTube. Study course. You study the, the, but there's one kind of guy that's a big guy in the Course in Miracles. I forget his name yeah, now. I've seen all of his YouTube's. I can guarantee you that they don't take it like I've just I'm described it. I'm not saying it. That anyone else understands it the way I'm understanding ah. it. What I'm saying is, I'm studying the book. It's a self-study course. It's me and the okay. And what I'm saying is that whatever you've been saying, I'm like... Understanding it in high. that way. So I'm understanding it in that way. Whatever other people understand, I have no control okay. over it. I don't really that's, care. That's true. So if you've understood that book or any other book, you can read Patanjali Yoga Sutras and understand it like I'm saying it. Mm. And say, no, <laughs> why not? Or you can read some uh, mystical books and understand it like I'm saying it. You'd be twisting what they're saying to understand it the way I'm saying it. That's my opinion. If you understand it like I'm saying it, I'm very happy because that means you understand what I'm talking yeah, about talking and that's about. all I really am concerned about. Yeah. My opinion is the Course of Miracles is absolutely different than Advaita Vedanta. But it doesn't matter. If you understand it as I'm teaching it, then I'm very happy because it's a unique way of understanding this teaching. Why are not more students doing Advaita Vedanta? Nobody likes Advaita Vedanta. It's the most unpopular. 
to the people in the world, this teaching seems like death. This is the end of life. It doesn't make your life better. It puts an end to duality. I want, please, truthfully, please, raise your hand if you want an end to duality. I'm surprised and I'm very happy. I'm not going to raise my hand. <laughs> I like duality. I don't want it to end. Really. After seven years of studying with my teacher, he said, Atma Chaitanya, you'll never understand Vedanta. I said, Swamiji, what? I come here, I've been studying, I know Sanskrit, I've a he said, you'll never understand Vedanta. I said, why? All you want to do is ask questions and argue. No, 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 no. I I'm just trying to understand it correctly. You'll never understand Vedanta. Okay, let let's just go on with the class. <laughs> and then I went back to my room and I started to think. And I examined and I realized, I don't want this duality to end. I just want to ask questions and understand it and have intellectual satisfaction about it. I don't want to do any of the sadhana. I don't want to change my life at all. I just want to study Vedanta and know the whole philosophy. I can repeat it to everybody. Sound familiar? Yes. I don't want duality at the end. I love this world. It's so beautiful. I have a wife, I love my... I'm so attached to the whole thing. To think that I could understand Vedanta, what a joke. I can't even do karma yoga. What to talk about, understand Advaita. I tried to give up the f desire for the fruits of my actions. What Krishna says, the very bottom. I can't get on to the first rung. Forty years later. What to talk about? I don't want moksha. If moksha means the end of me, this ira, I'm very attached to this guy. I'd rather be a Vedanta scholar and run around the world talking about this. I don't want duality to end. You examine yourself really and truthfully. It's easy to put up your hand. When one doesn't see another, hear another, know another, is that what you want? The ego doesn't want that. Gaudapada says, yogis fear this teaching because they see it as the destruction of their own self. It's a scary teaching. Do I have to drop dead to become a jnani? I don't want it. Of course, Gaudapada says, we see fear where there's no fear at all. That's the state of fearlessness, not being in evil. But that's another story. And I realized in that room, I'm not a mamukshu. I just want to study the subject and then go eat in nice restaurants and buy fancy watches and live in a beautiful house. I'm filled with desires 40 years later that vairagya, it never came to me. That inward turn, I get it when I'm sitting here talking to you guys. 
but I'm just as extrovert as everyone else. There's no difference. I'm sorry to say, I'm not a guru. Shrotriya Brahmanishta, that's not me. I can teach you what Shankar says, but I'm an ignorant man. I'm worse than an ignorant man. I'm someone who talks about such a sublime subject, but I'm so far away from it. It's my prapta. It's my karma. But it doesn't have to apply to you. Those people who raised their hand and said they really want non-duality, they're the candidates for it. They're the real ones. They're the mamukshus. And I encourage you, if you have that desire, you'll be the one who can understand this thing the best. The qualifications for Vedanta is not for every Tom, Dick, and Harry. You know the pictures of Shankara? They always only have four disciples. That's all he could get. Four guys. Why wasn't there a big group? Nobody wants this. Once they see what's going on here, that's it. They go back to Hatha Yoga or something. Uh, let's get healthy. We'll go on a vegetarian diet. Something. But the end of duality? No, thank you. That's death. They see it as death. It's immortality but we see it as death. So it has something to do with the karma. I just use that expression. It's just that some people, their minds are so extrovert and they're so filled with other interests and that this subject may be of interest to them, but it hasn't become all-consuming. It has to take you in a way that there's nothing else that really matters to you. That's what's really required. And you have to be honest with yourself by examining your own self and see, is that really where I'm at? And then if it's not, at least in a little bit, can you move in that direction? So Gaudapada says at the end of the Karikas, the last thing he says, we all try to approach this yatabalaha according to our own capacity. Everybody can do this according to their own capacity. You have to be honest with yourself. First of all, do you want it? And then you have to see what are the qualities and what are my qualities. Yeah, remember when I told you that my guru every night at the end of the day, he spends one hour examining how he behaved throughout the day to see if he did anything wrong so that tomorrow I'll make the resolve, I won't do that again. Did I stuff my face with food today? I won't do that again. Did I hurt somebody by saying something that hurt their feelings? I won't do that again. Did I do my meditation in the proper way or was I letting my mind run all over the place? I won't do that. This introspection of being ruthlessly honest with yourself is a characteristic that a sadhaka has to develop. You have to be introspective and see what's going on. And you have to have that motivation, that stira, 
Amani tvama dambi tvama hipsashanti rajavama charyam pasanam stash. Styriam. That styriam, that vritti, that firmness. I'm going to do this. I want this more than anything else. I'm going to make the greatest efforts for this. This is my desire. This is what the goal of my life is for that person. It becomes very easy. In the beginning, we have to make the greatest efforts. But when you become a jnana all of those qualities will be yours with no effort at all. You'll make no effort to be humble. <coughs> It'll be your nature. You don't have to be jealous of anyone. Why? I am Donald Trump. <laughs> I, am a, I am a billionaire. And I am the pauper. I am everybody. I have all the wealth. There's nothing other than me. What could I want? It's not an effort not to be jealous. There's nobody richer than me. There's nobody more content than me. Because I found the goal of my life. Krita Kritya. I've done what I had to do. There's nothing more to be done. That feeling of the Jnana who's satisfied in himself. Atmaniyeva Tushta. He's satisfied in the self alone. Atmaniyeva Ramantaha. He revels in that self alone. Atmaniyeva Sitta. That Jnana he's established in that reality. That's the person. He doesn't have to make any more efforts. He made the greatest efforts to get there. But when he realizes, I am that, he is that. And this jnana remains a jnana But now, all of those qualities are his with no effort at all. And he becomes the example of what ignorant people like us have to strive to become. He's the acharya. Because his achar, his behavior is so beautiful, so perfect. He's so content. He's sitting in the corner with two claws. He's got nothing. And the guy's sitting there happy. How could that be? He's got nothing. If they give him some food, okay. No food, okay. What kind of, how could that be? And there he is, content in his own self. Is there really such a state? Krishna says he's the same in praise and pleasure and happiness and sorrow, in pain. Even the greatest pains don't affect him. How could that be? You watch the Acharya, how he lives. You see if he's trying to get into the people's pocket, get their money, trying to sleep with the ladies, trying to... That's the Acharyas we have today the people who think they're jnanis, and they're beyond dharma and the dharma, so they can do anything. They can stuff their face with food. Why not? I'm a jnani. This type of hypocrisy. Arjavam, straightforwardness. Not presenting yourself as a big guru to the people, and then you got a private life in the room there. You're watching Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good class. We'll meet at eight o'clock. We'll do some kirtan.
and we'll, we'll continue with some discussion. Let's end this with the Purnamada. You know, in the light of what I was teaching, when it says, that is fullness, what am I talking about? That is fullness. That is fullness. That Purna. What is that? Atman, the self. That is fullness. From that fullness, this fullness has come. Oh, I'm sorry. That is fullness. Purnamada, Purnamidam. This is fullness. The rope is fullness, and the snake is fullness, because the reality of the snake is the rope. It is fullness in truth. That is fullness. This is fullness. From that fullness, from that rope, the snake has come. This porna has come. Pornat, pornam udachite. This fullness has come from that fullness. It can't come from anywhere else. The snake can't come from anywhere else except the rope. The mirage can't come from anywhere else except the sand. The city in the sky can't come from anywhere else except the cloud. That reality, this maya, that is fullness, this is fullness. From that fullness, this fullness has come. Take this fullness away, pornasya, pornamadaya. Take it away, what happens? That Atman remains, that fullness remains. There's only fullness. You know, there's two hotels in Mysore. One is called Nargarjuna Hotel, true story. And there's a hotel next to it, it's called Shankara Hotel. Whenever you try to check into the Shankara Hotel, they say, sorry, we're all full. You go to the Nagarjuna Hotel, they say, sorry, we're empty right now. You'll have to come back some other time. Shankara is porna, not shunya. Everything is fullness. This is all nothing but fullness. The reality of this is porna. Now we'll do it. Om